Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Michael Schellenberger, a longtime environmental activist who won Time Magazine's Hero of the Environment Award in 2008. He is the founder and president of Environmental Progress, an independent nonpartisan research organization based in Berkeley, California. His new book is Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. I gave the little bio at the beginning, but when you read the book, you realize that you've been doing fighting for environmental causes for for quite a while and, and gotten your hands dirty in a lot of different places. So aside from what I've read for your bio, can you give us a little bit of background on, on where you're, you're coming from and the kind of stuff that you've done? Sure. Uh, so I've been, like you mentioned, done environmental and progressive advocacy since I was a teenager. I did a little fundraiser when I was 16 for Rainforest Action Network. That was probably the first political event I did. Um, I, I used to do uh, sort of activist communications for environmental groups, including all the big ones, Sierra Club, Greenpeace, NRDC. I then started a Labor Environment Alliance to push for renewables in the early 2000s, and we successfully persuaded the Obama campaign team to go big on a, a public investment in renewables uh, around 2007. And then I started, we started documenting a bunch of problems with renewables. You know, some of the biggest ones are just the impact on the environment. So solar and wind farms require about 300 times more land than a natural gas or a nuclear plant that started generating a lot of grassroots environmental opposition everywhere from Cape Cod to California. And around the same time, some friends of mine said, you know, you really ought to take a second look at nuclear power. Obviously, it's zero carbon emissions. It has a bunch of uh, fears associated with it. But after I did some research and read about particularly Chernobyl, which was an incident that occurred when I was 15, it was obviously very scary. I changed my mind about nuclear. And I, I see that as really a pivotal moment because I, it, it sort of changed how I thought about broader questions of resources, the environment. Um, you know, with nuclear power, there's no risk of resource scarcity because you have effectively infinite energy and infinite energy means you have infinite fresh water and fertilizer and there's no shortage of food. I mean, even without nuclear, I think there's some questions about whether there's really resource scarcity, but nonetheless with nuclear, it really makes that clear. And that then kind of raised a set of broader questions about what environmentalism was really about and what it was after. And that's uh, a bunch of the material that I discuss in Apocalypse Never. What do we mean by alarmism in the environmentalist context? I mean, is it really just a different word for disagreeing about magnitude or does it mean something more specific? It means a lot of, in, in Apocalypse Never, I certainly describe a lot of different kinds of alarmism and a lot of its motivations as well as its effects. I mean, I think it's a neutral word. So I consider myself a pandemic alarmist, for example. I think that when you have an emerging pandemic, that it's better to be alarmist uh, early in the stage of the pandemic where you can most quickly stop its spread. I think you know now, later in the pandemic, I actually am less of an alarmist. Um, in fact, uh, I sort of have become more, I've become less of an alarmist as the pandemic has progressed. But, but I argue in the book that environmental alarmism hurts us all 
you know, in a variety of ways. I mean, it's certainly, you know, this is probably my motivation for the book. It has just negative mental health consequences that are now pretty well documented. You know, half of all people in the world think that climate change will make us extinct. We see that climate change is contributing to anxiety and depression, including among adolescents, for whom anxiety and depression has been rising, particularly among girls, you know, along with suicides in ways that maybe that appear to be tied in some ways to the rise of social media. But certainly adolescents don't need more things to worry about. Um, and it's also been used as a cover for doing pretty bad things, including depriving poor countries of cheap, reliable energy, not just in the form of fossil fuels, but also hydroelectric dams and certainly nuclear power plants. And it's also been used as cover to do pretty terrible things in the United States, both in the, in the form of closing nuclear plants that could run for decades longer and that are universally replaced by both fossil fuels and also renewables with huge land use impacts. And it's been used to basically not enforce environmental laws against favored technologies, principally renewables. So I think that what I've been trying to, what I try to document is both the, you know, a sweeping set of negative consequences that alarmism has, as well as some of its darker motivations. Do you have a theory of, of, because you came out of this world to, to some extent and a theory of what, so alarmism can be a strategic position. I mean, you, you have fiscal hawks or inflation, like think about inflation now. Some people strategically adopt an alarmist position for the purposes of trying to get people to come to maybe a compromise position that is like closer uh, versus like being an earnest belief, which is the one thing that has always struck me odd because I've read the IPCC reports and so many times when I discuss climate change alarmists, um, they just prefer the most extreme scenario, uh, which I'm just like, well, why would you prefer that most extreme scenario? So, I mean, do you have a theory of like where this is kind of coming from when it's in the face of the facts? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's an interesting question, which is to what extent are people actually alarmist or are they being alarmist to just, you know, get attention or as a negotiating posture? You know, I think in general, it's really hard to hold two different positions, you know, a public position and then a private position. I just don't think people are very good at compartmentalizing that. We all might be good at like white lies in our daily life, but maintaining, you know, a deception like that, I think is, is very difficult and it's not a, does not particularly explain what's going on. You know, that being said, I think a lot of people start by exaggerating, you know, look to journalists in particular, you know, so basically there's three groups that are engaged in alarmism. There's the science, there's activist scientists, there's activist journalists, and then there's just activists. You know, in journalism, you want your article to be as dramatic and extreme and as alarming as possible because it attracts readers. And that's fundamentally the bread and butter of journalism is you want to have readers. Scientists, there's obviously an incentive to exaggerate as well. It, uh, it's good for your career. It, it, it elevates your issue among, among a bunch of other competing issues. It does attract funding. And then for activists, obviously, it's the way to get into the news media. It's a way to get attention. So there's certainly all that. I think that over time, one of the things that has occurred is that I do think alarmism 
sometimes started as a kind of tactic or a negotiating posture. But then I think that the main actors involved in it really started to believe in it and it started to affect how they did their research, how they do their science, how they do their advocacy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, both things are happening. It seems, though, the environment is is different from other areas where there are potential risks and where those risks aren't entirely known in advance because it depends on a lot of information that we might not have. So, you know, you don't know how, you know, you don't know exactly what your chances are when you hop in your car to drive to the grocery store that you're going to get in an accident. Um, but you know that there is a risk and you you take that risk. And we might say that there are people who are, you know, automobile accident alarmists and maybe they respond by asking by like not ever getting in the car or only driving at times when they feel like it's going to be safer or whatever but the 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 risks of that kind of alarmism are contained to the person and ultimately i guess reversible they could change their mind and get back and you know drive more often but with the environment it's this big system that it seems all dependent on all of the other parts and if, say, the non-alarmists are wrong and things get out of hand, we're kind of all screwed. Like it, things can turn very, very bad in a non-reversible way. And so does that counsel us to be maybe more alarmist in this area than we might otherwise be just on like a, I guess, a precautionary principle sense? Yeah. So the argument certainly for a long time has been that we don't know, we can't understand environmental risks, they're too complex, and therefore we should err on the side of precaution. Um, there's a bunch of problems with that. I mean, the first is like, it's a sweeping statement. So, so you know, it, it, and it ignores the fact that we become more resilient to the environment. We become less vulnerable to say extreme weather uh, by doing things that create carbon emissions, you know, so we've seen deaths from natural disasters have declined over 90% globally, 99% in places like Bangladesh over the last 40 years. Well, they achieve, we achieve that, you know, not by reducing our carbon emissions, we achieve that through development. And so development makes us resilient to a whole set of risks, uh, not just uh, environmental, but Many, many risks um, in our society, um, including from conflict or war or asteroids or other, you know, extreme tail risks. You know, I think the issue, the second issue, though, is that the uncertainty is, is um, I'll give you, it's better to tell us as a story. You know, there's this idea in climate science that there are potentially these thresholds or tipping points that after we cross them, a set of different systems will start to fall apart. So you hear people talking about you get to a certain level of warmth and the tundra, the frozen tundra melts. Methane, which is natural gas, is released. That accelerates the warming. Um, that accelerates then ice melting. The ice melting changes the Gulf Stream in some ways, and that somehow changes you know, weather patterns in the Amazon. And then the Amazon burns up, and then there's a cycle of it burning. And you basically, the, 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 the intergermal panel of climate change does not consider 
tipping points the basis for influencing their scenarios. So they do discuss it, but they don't consider it science in or the base a reliable basis for creating scenarios. And the reason is that there's just too many chains of there's too many different chains of causality. And so, you know, I interviewed the lead author of the biggest tipping points paper in recent years, came out 2019 in Nature. And he said, you know, yeah, and he basically agreed with everything I raised. And he even pointed out, you know, part of the problem is that, say, in the Amazon, the scientists have sort of changed their minds over the last couple of decades into, at first they thought that climate change would result in more rain. And now they worry it'll dry out the Amazon. So you have some fundamental problems like that where you can't actually paint a scenario. The other issue is just that, you know, there may be hidden thresholds or tipping points that will be crossed no matter what we do. Even if we stopped all emissions today, we may still cross one of those tipping points. So that's an argument for greater societal resiliency, greater wealth. Um, not, I think, this the, the way that the precautionary principle was constructed for many years was that, well, because we can identify this risk, we should completely orient everything around that risk. But the problem is that when you start looking particularly at catastrophic risks, you come up with things like pandemics and wars and asteroids and super volcanoes and alien invasions. We can now add to that list. But with all of them, you know, there's certain things you would do. I, for example, think we should probably be doing more on asteroid detection. Uh, we, we've missed a few. Um, but the bottom line is that you want greater societal resilience, you want greater societal wealth so that you're prepared for any kind of disaster that comes. And that's a separate, I, I, after I finish saying that, I think people then, they always say, well, then are you saying we should do nothing? Well, of course not. Um, we should do things. And, and on climate change, we are. I mean, the United States has reduced its carbon emissions more than any other country over the last 20 years. Thanks to the fracking revolution, disproportionately, which similarly was criticized by people who said that it was too risky. So, you know, it's, um, I think the precautionary principle discourse has been really disingenuous. It's been really misleading. It's been, it's been used to basically use to trigger an emotional response um, and kind of bully people, you know, into, uh, believing or saying or wanting to do different things when when you really start to pull it apart, you just reveal significantly greater levels of complexity. Would Were you ever an alarmist in the way that we're discussing? I mean, I mean you kind of discuss it a bit in the book, but I, I feel like almost reading between the lines, is, as I mentioned, one thing I really like about your book is it is full of stories. And many of those stories are you getting your hands dirty in very poor countries, relatively poor to America, especially. And that's a huge focus that, that you actually go and look at people who are struggling with finding any energy. And I, and that seems to be a big influence on your thinking maybe and how it changed over the years when you go away from developed countries and you go to developing countries or third world countries and see what's actually going on. So I was a climate alarmist for probably 20 years, you know, really the 90s and the, and the 2000s. I mean, really from the mid 90s to the late 2000s, I was the most alarmist. And in the book, I point out that, you know, some of it probably just had to do with some unhappiness in my own life. I just think there is a relationship. I think when, I think there's a, 
psychological motivation to be alarmist um, in some circumstances. <laughs> Not all of them. Um, like I said, I, I, I think my pandemic alarmism came from a more psychologically healthy place than my climate alarmism did. Um, you know, which was coming out of a point in my life where, you know, it's sort of not wanting to deal with certain personal things. And so you end up being like the world is a catastrophe. I mean, it's a, there's a, the story of catastrophism is basically the same story of a depressed person, which is, you know, the story of environmentalism, which is that, you know, humans are terrible. The world is a, is, you know, a terrible place, unjust, unequal, unfair, and the future is dark. You know, the end of the world is coming. I mean, that's identical to what psychologists have identified as the story of a depressed person. So, so for sure, um, I was, I was more alarmist. You know, it was really, a, uh, around 2008, 2009, 2010, I started to, uh, develop a friendship with Roger Pilkey Jr., who's a, a character in Apocalypse Never. And who's basically just shown that, you know, all of the increased cost of natural disasters is explained not by natural disasters getting worse because they haven't, um, but really just by the fact that we're so much wealthier. And I didn't understand that before 2008. I should have, but I didn't. And I think uh, for a variety of reasons, and a, lot of, a lot of people still don't understand that. So I think that kind of my, I had the alarmism and it was based on a foundation of both ignorance and, um, you know, some amount of my own anxiety and depression. It seems like there are two potential, like, motivating ideas that might lead us to environmentalism. The one is the, we care a lot about humanity and environmental harm, climate change, pollution, whatever the issue is, is going to be bad for people. It's going to lead to deaths, shorter life spans, poverty, and so on. Um, and so therefore, we should be environmentalists because the the ultimate goal is what's good for humanity. The other version of it is, and I think this is somewhat related to the, the depression angle that you just spoke about, is the earth and a pristine, untouched, unused and abused environment is is an end in and of itself is worth preserving um, and that that our use of it even if it benefits us is if not entirely like unjust is at least unseemly um is one of those a stronger motivator of alarmism because it, it often seems like when you talk with alarmists they talk in terms of the the former but Ultimately, when you when you push back, you get the sense that a lot of it is is the latter, that there's just something wrong with us swarming over all over this this pristine environment and we should knock it off. Yeah, great question. I'm actually uh, just finishing my next book and I'm asking a really similar question. My next book is about sort of the progressive response to uh, drug addiction, mass incarceration, homelessness. And I think that the way it works is I, there is this, there is a lot of evidence that progressives, environmentalists, people on the left do have, you know, are kind of what we think. They are, we are more bleeding heart, tend to be more, um, 
compassionate and sensitive, all the stereotypes. There's the truth to that. It's been documented. I think then that then gets married to a really powerful belief system, which is that all of the suffering that you see out there, or at least the vast majority of it is a fundamental consequence of an unfair society. And this is just Rousseau, right? This is just, you know, everything wrong with the world is because of inequality, because of status competitions. Later, Marx you know, took this up and said it's because of capitalism, but it's the same basic idea. And that idea itself implies that some kind of social arrangement is possible where there isn't all that suffering. So it's both a, there's, there's an implicit, and I think that's developed in people, it's developed in children, you know, in our schools, by our parents, by the culture, whatever. Um, but I think that people forget it sort of, or it sort of becomes unconscious almost. And so then when we grow up, go to college, get our degrees, you know, pursue, uh, you know, a life of science or journalism or advocacy, and we come up with, so we come, we confront some problem, we find some way of explaining how that problem is due to fundamentally this question of, of social inequality and social structure and society. And um, never even really being honest with ourselves or with others that we have in mind some radically different society arranged in some really different way. And obviously some people do spend a lot of time talking about what that would look like. But there's, I think, an implicit assumption that that's possible rather than, you know, there's a lot of different belief systems, obviously, that, uh, you know, mostly religious ones that basically describe sufferings, you know, and inequality as inevitable, as nothing you can do about, or as, you know, we have Buddhist response to that, which is, um, you know, uh, suffering is really about our attachment to things in the world. You know, you have a, um, a stoic response, which is, hey, you shouldn't worry about things you can't control. And a lot of these things are out of our control. Those are very different. Those are just two, obviously. But those are two very different responses to the suffering we see from, I think, the dominant, progressive, Rousseauian, environmentalist uh, response. That makes me think about this question I've often had with nuclear, which you're a huge proponent of. But the environmental movement has been very, very skeptical. We could get into where that kind of came from, but going to Aaron's question about two ways of approaching environmentalism, sometimes I think the people, some of the more ardent environmentalists, they just oppose nuclear because it doesn't actually create a wholesale change in how we're living our lives. Like that there's like an aesthetic revulsion to consumption, cities, all this kind of stuff. And that if we say, all right, you're right. Coal's bad. We'll just take all the coal power plants offline. We'll put them all with nuclear power plants. Uh, no more emissions problems. Uh, we already have some existing, but no more new ones. And everyone can continue to drive their car and, and have their refrigerators and all that stuff. And really what they want is, is they want that to change. So they're kind of not being honest about their sort of aesthetic revulsion to modern life. Yeah, you got it. That's a big part of it. I wrote a piece called the real reason they hate nuclear is because it means we don't have to use renewables, <laughs> which sort of uh, gets at that part. Yeah, it's obviously there's a desire to change society and, and change other people's behaviors. And I think that then goes and finds 
reasons to do that. You know, um, religions have always been trying to tell people what to eat. You know, that's a big part of it. And so environmentalists are trying to tell people what to eat. And they say, well, we, I'm telling you what to eat because we, to save the environment. You know, I point out in the book, if you go vegetarian, you reduce your carbon emissions somewhere like two to 4%. And that's, that's many studies find that. So it's basically irrelevant. Um, you know, eating meat does take a lot of land. That's true, but you can significantly reduce the amount of land to produce meat by just moving from pasture raised beef to, to more industrial concentrated meat production. Well, then people find reasons to be against that. So, you know, if you, I think your point is exactly right. If you, if your goal is really to change society, um, in, way in supposedly radical ways or even in smaller ways or to just demoralize against people's behavior, you have to oppose everything that would not that everything that would obviate the need to do that. So um, I, I think that's for sure the case with nuclear. I, I will say with nuclear, I mean, nuclear has just been such a source of creativity and exploration in so many ways, because when you're kind of like, why are people anti-nuclear? There's, several big reasons. One of them is the one we just talked about. You know, another one is just that it is a way to make really powerful bombs. And I could never satisfy, I, I, I always try to get to the bottom of it. Like there must be some, some, some motivation that's deeper or animating the other motivations. And to some extent, I think that's true for, for, with nuclear with being, you know, a really powerful weapon and, and, and truly a potentially apocalyptic weapon. But then I think there's this other part, which is what we you know talked about, which is this desire to change society and the threat that nuclear poses in a different sense, a threat to um, the, the desire to moralize and to change society. And I could never figure out which of those was more important or, and I, I think they both kind of sit right side by side with each other quite comfortably. Um, and, and, you know, are so powerful together that it helps explain how it is that we have still really not used what is, I think, you know, obviously the best way to make electricity. On the question of poverty, this is, as I mentioned, it's it's what always gets me uh, when we come to these debates of as someone who deeply cares about the environment, but also knows that I use a lot of energy to do things like play music and refrigerate uh, my food that is not available to about two and a half billion people. And you do a very good job of going to different uh, places, telling stories in the Congo, for example, or in the Amazon about what's actually going on. For example, two years ago about or so we had this whole big, you know, big thing about the Amazon burning and the lungs of the earth are burning. Um, and you, you, you take that on as, a, it's not true, and B, what's the actual cause of that, to use just sort of a recent catastrophe that everyone believes something about? So what we have in the Congo is desperately poor people, small farmers um, who need land. And so they're, they, they're, they're basically encroaching on this absolutely spectacular park full of some of the world's most fantastic wildlife, including the mountain gorillas. But also created by the European, you know, colonial, you know, colonizers who really did a made a hash of the Congo, and so it's a really, um, 
you know, ambivalent situation because you have desperately poor people who just want to use the land and the park to survive, but you've also got just what is a truly one of a kind piece of nature. And so the obvious thing is that you should want for people, and when you interview people, what they want, um, most of them, you know, is a job in the city. So what you need are jobs in the cities, you know, that would basically pull the pressure away from the parks and, and give people a different way to make their livelihoods. It would also then generate income so people could, you know, buy fertilizer and irrigation and tractors and produce more food on the land that they have. So why don't environmentalists advocate for, you know, industrialization, for factories, for cities, for urbanization? You move to the Amazon and it's more a situation of, and there's really even there, there's two parts of it. There's this, the Amazon rainforest, and then there's the savanna area below it. And the pressure has come from both cattle ranchers and soy farmers who tend to be better capitalized, wealthier than the farmers in the Congo. And they're just, um, you know, expanding the forest frontier, the farming frontier into the forests, uh, you know, for to produce very valuable commodities to sell on the global market. What needs to happen there is that the farming and ranching ought to be concentrated in the savanna rather than in rather than in the rainforest. But instead of doing that, Greenpeace and others advocated that the private landowners should have to set aside basically 50% of their land for conservation. It sounds good in principle, but the result is you end up with fragmented forests that can't sustain the big apex predators that need a lot of of habitat to move between. And so the fires in the Amazon are are really just a function of how much land is cleared for farming. Um, You know, there are sometimes some fires in the rainforest itself, but they're uh, they're not hard to deal with. They don't spiral out of control. Mostly the big fires that we paid attention to a couple of years ago were just farmers that had cleared a forested area and were burning the biomass to prepare you know, the land for farming or for ranching. And then you move up to California and California and Australia are basically the same in this part. And here it's a totally different situation because, of course, we we've converted most of our forests into ranches and farmlands, you know, a hundred years ago and our fires, and we have two different kinds, but basically our fires are entirely a problem of just failure to manage them properly. And so well-managed forests are going to handle climate change just fine. Um, and the proof of that we saw last summer where, you know, uh, these high intensity fires, which we don't want, because they burn the crowns of the trees and convert forests into shrublands. When these high intensity fires and poorly managed forests, which had had too much wood debris built up, when they reached well-managed forest lands, the the high intensity fires dropped into into the forest floor, which is where healthy fires exist. Because of course you do want fires in a lot of uh, forests around the world. It's a healthy part of the ecosystem. It burns off the woody debris. So, you know, I think that the way it gets presented irresponsibly, you know, by the way, by journalists and activists is, is fire's bad. <laughs> we should not want fire. And that's not the case, actually. In fact, putting out fires 
in places like California and Australia has been part of the problem. And then it just bulldozes all of the, you know, economic questions, you know, there. So you have Europeans and people in California moralizing against Brazilians or people in Africa for, for logging, ranching, farming, when these are some of the poorest people in the world. And, and many of the rich people who are moralizing and, and criticizing them live in places like Napa in California, Provence in France, or Tuscany in Italy, which are all farm and ranch lands that used to be former forests. So I try to pull apart those issues a little bit to reveal those kind of both those ecological and the economic complexities. Take a step back into the the rhetoric of this or the the strategies for arguing against this kind of alarmism because the examples that you just gave and we can we can go through and we can find examples but it feels like we're often stuck in this game of essentially like issue whack-a-mole where there's this thing it pops up that's it's fires in the amazon well no it's not actually you know the the story that the uh that the alarmists are telling us is not actually accurate, but then there's, you know, there's other stories and this sort of thing plays out not just in environmentalism, but, you know, all over the place in, in policy and political questions. And to steal a point from my colleague, Julian Sanchez, um, that seems like in a lot of these cases, the, the individual instances fires in the Amazon or deforestation in a particular place are not really what people are worried about. They're merely like they're representative of a broader thing. So, you know, deforestation is bad or pollution is bad. And here's an example. But then as soon as you knock down that example, it doesn't really matter because the underlying motive of pollution is bad remains. And and in attacking the example, so like we need, you know, we need nu- nuclear power is not as bad as you thought it was and is in fact pretty good, gets framed as, oh, you don't actually care about the environment or you're trying to, I was motivated to this position um, because I really care about the environment. So by you attacking this position or telling me I shouldn't worry about it in this instance, what you're telling me is that I don't actually care about the environment as much as I, you know, say I do, which makes it awfully hard and I think gets to this like slipping back to just, you know, well, I can find a different example over here. So how do how do people like you begin to push back on a lot of these views when even the pushback is framed as like an ideological stance that's somehow dismissive of, you know, of the underlying concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is just to to take a page from the Stoics to, to recognize to what some extent that's just inevitable, right? I mean, that's just people arguing. That's just politics. That's people trying to, um, you know, frame their opponents as having bad intentions. I do, obviously, in a podcast never, I spent a lot of time talking about my intentions, about my, you know, love of nature, my concern for the poor, uh, you know, and lifting people out of poverty. I think it is important to reiterate that, even though, of course, I'm attacked as not really caring about people in the environment. You know, I must be secretly after money or something. Um, so that's just to be expected. But I do think it is important to to make a value statement um, and to describe what we're for. 
you know, I think that, uh, you know, uh, conservatives and, and then libertarians have in the past said, well, 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 what we're for, you know, is markets or I think more, more actually more accurately, you know, for freedom, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's important and it's important to be in favor of freedom. Um, but I do think you have to just, you know, we also have to, at least if you are in favor of it, you have to recognize that I think we're also in favor of nature, of what we call nature, or at least of protected areas of endangered species. You know, and I think it may be that in the past, you know, I think to be fair, I think there are more people on the right who who don't care as much about those things, um, you know, who are just not conservationists. I think if you look at the tradition of, you know, Julian Simon and, and even my, my friend Bjorn Lomborg, you know, they just will say we have to put humans before nature. And I always had a bit of a problem with that, not because... I disagree necessarily. In other words, you know, if I have to choose between Bernadette, you know, my what, my character from the Congo, a small farmer in the Congo, and a mountain gorilla, of course, you know, I side with Bernadette. But but that's not really what's going on there. And it would be misdescribing the situation to suggest that that we have to choose between Bernadette and the gorilla. And that part, I guess, I agree with with more conventional environmentalists who have insisted that it doesn't need to be a choice. I agree. It doesn't need to be, we shouldn't have to choose between Bernadette and the gorillas. Um, We can have both, but it does mean that we have to have urbanization and it does mean that we need to have factories and it does mean that we need to have fracking and nuclear, like on those technical questions. That's where I don't think, um, you know, we can wish that stuff away. So, you know, I don't think there's any kind of secret uh, rhetorical sauce that makes this different. But I do think it is important to make clear a value statement in favor, you know, of things beyond, you know, freedom and markets to really valuing uh, uh, people um, and the inherent worth of, of everybody um, and the right to, to live prosperous and and flourishing lives, uh, which a word, a flourishing is a word I really love that comes, I see it coming more from libertarians. Um, but also we value nature and that we think that there, there are, you know, parts of this planet that should be protected from, um, you know, resource use market markets, um, and exploitation, even though it might be valuable to use them for that, we just would decide that there's some places that we don't want to sacrifice because they're too beautiful or special or spiritual or, or whatever, for whatever reason we have to save it. How should we feel about plastics? I like the plastics chapter a lot because you approach it from a bunch of angel angles, including where plastics have saved environmental issues. But like in general, I know a lot of people who police their own plastic use quite a lot. Um, but if you dig down into it, there's a lot of nuance to this issue, as you point out in the book. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, you know, obviously it's horrible to have plastic waste in the oceans. It's horrible to have plastic waste in rivers and streams and lakes. I, every, nobody wants that. Um, the good news is we don't have to have that. We have already developed the perfect technological fixes to eliminate all plastic waste from the environment. And that is landfills in the United States is what we mostly use or incinerators, which is what tends to be used in more densely populated places like Western Europe and, 
and Asia. Incinerators had a bit of a bad rap. They used to release dioxins, uh, uh, dangerous pollutants, but now they burn so hot, they break apart the dioxin molecules. So, and there used to be some concerns about landfills leaking. They've totally solved that. We now seal the landfills. We extract the gas that escapes from landfills. We burn it for energy. So these are really fantastic solutions. Um, recycling has worked you know, pretty well for paper and tin and glass for kind of heavier materials. Recycling is totally unnecessary and uneconomic for plastic. And the reason for it is that, you know, plastic, what we call plastic today is, is made out of a waste byproduct from the petrochemical industry, from the oil and gas industry. So it's already, you're already, you know, reusing this waste material in plastics. You're downcycling it by using it, uh, you know, for, you know, as various forms of plastic. And then the right end, you, it's going to be waste. You know, if you stop, if we stopped using fossil based plastic waste tomorrow, there would still all be all that waste to dispose of. Um, and again, we have this, we have the waste disposal systems. Um, today's fossil based plastics actually have prevented enormous amounts of environmental harm. You know, with the original plastics were made out of elephant tusks, you know, for billiard balls and piano keys and, and other things for ivory. Tortoise shell glasses, you know, the tortoise shell, it was actually made from sea turtle shell, which you know, basically led to the decimation of the Hawksbill sea turtle and, um, uh, you know, really almost the point of extinction. And so, so fossil-based plastics are these amazing substitutes. And that doesn't even, that's before you even get to just the miracles that plastics perform. You know, anybody that's been to a hospital or had a loved one in a hospital knows just how important plastics are to having a clean um, and sanitary uh, healthcare system. So I think that, you know, in the book, we got very close to saying, throw your plastic in the trash can, do not recycle them because recycling them is contributing to the ocean waste problem. We couldn't quite fully connect the dots, but just in the year since the book has come out, it's become clear that a significant quantity of ocean plastic waste, in fact, is waste that was destined for recycling. Um, in poor countries, because 90% of our plastic waste that we, we put in the recycling bin never is recycled. And it's never recycled because it's not economic to do so. Instead, it's shipped to poor countries, which don't have landfills and incinerators, and often ends up in the oceans. So it's, um, I mean, it's really... I think I'm not going to do it, but somebody should, somebody should write a whole book just on plastics and how just terribly, terribly wrong we got it. And the, I guess I mean we've caught, we've gone through nuclear a bit, and we've talked about plastics and deforestation. Um, the other one that is super hot and seems to get hotter all the time, and you already mentioned that you were involved with this during the Obama administration, was renewables in places like Germany. Uh, I can't remember the exact number of how much their the average power bill has gone up in Germany because they're switching to renewables, North Sea wind farms, for example. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're buying a lot of coal energy from Poland. I mean, that seems to show that renewables 
are maybe good for augmenting certain parts of the power, but it doesn't seem like something that we can really rely on. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, on the one hand, it seems like the headlines every day are, you know, renewables are growing so fast and they're going to take over. Um, it's not really true. We've invested a huge amount of money in in solar and wind. You know, they generate about the same amount of electricity as nuclear, but it costs twice as much and it's not reliable. Um, and that lack of reliability or the weather dependent nature of renewables has basically created a crisis everywhere they've been deployed at scale. So we see in Germany, they've been really limited in how much they can scale up solar and wind just because of grassroots opposition, but also because of the challenges of operating a grid with significant amounts of fluctuating weather dependent power coming in and off the grid. We saw blackouts in California that was directly due to the state relying too much on solar and not uh, overestimating its ability to power the state. So we had rolling blackouts last summer, you know, because we had shut down too many natural gas and nuclear plants. I think just to clarify, the problem is that we over relied on renewables. Um, you know, in Germany, they just have maintained their coal plants um, so that they didn't have the reliability problem. Um, but I think now we're seeing other things happening that I do think much more significantly threaten the future of, of solar and wind. I mean, we now know that 90% of the world's uh, polysilicon uh, comes out of China. And so out of what province in China that the State Department says is, is a place where genocide is being committed against ethnic Muslims. And so John Kerry... President Biden's climate envoy testified last week to Congress that the administration may have to put sanctions on solar panels coming out of China. I don't see how anybody, I don't see how we can keep importing solar panels that, you know, multiple investigative reports show are being made by, by workers who have been forced into making a decision about whether they'll go to concentration camps or work in the solar panel factory. Uh, those are enforced labor conditions or slave conditions, um, as one member of Congress referred to them last week. So I think that renewables are actually coming into crisis. Um, I don't know that it'll be this year or next year, but I do think over time, I mean, to some extent it's already happening. The trance that we've had around renewables for the last decade will break. And we've already started to see some of it. I mean, we also saw the Biden administration came out for, for, taking measures to keep all of our nuclear plants running, you know, really against the Democratic caucus in the House and much of the progressive movement that's just adamantly anti-nuclear. So I do think there's some more realism setting in around the limitations of weather-dependent renewables in particular. Um, but I do think that the love of renewables is so strong that it may take a while to for people to really change their minds. So for someone who's listened to us talk for the last 50 minutes and has, you know, they've heard a lot of skepticism about a lot of the issues that, that environmentalists seem most concerned about, but, but they consider themselves to be environmentally conscious and want to do whatever they can to help or to protect the environment. Do you have a, like a, an approach that they can use rules of thumb for being environmentally conscious in a informed or non-alarmist way? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wish, I don't think there's a, 
I don't think there's actually a, there's not an easy set of rules. And in fact, I wrote, I think I wrote Apocalypse Never in part to sort of help with that, which is to sort of go through the different things that people can do. I mean, certainly you can stop eating meat. Um, I don't think it's particularly healthy, at least not for me. And I don't think it's necessary uh, to save the natural environment. Um, but it does reduce your land use impact for sure. And very modestly, your carbon emissions. You know, we talked about plastics. Um, you know, there's other things where I just think so much of it is so trivial compared to these big macro forces. That I don't spend a lot of time on it, but you know, I drive my old car. <laughs> I drive a car that's almost 20 years old uh, because I just, I think that um, the materials throughput, the amount of materials required to make a car, um, you know, is pretty, it's still pretty significant. And when you look at like, for example, electric cars, which a lot of people think are just inevitably the future of transportation. I have my doubts in part because of the heavier nature, like if you see a Tesla, it's a really heavy car. And what generally happens is our end use technologies get lighter. So you have a, you know, a, a lower, you know, weight to power ratio, you know, say with automobiles than you did with, you know, horse and carriage. And so when you start to see rematerialization, whether it's in your car or your products, or even the electrical grid itself, you know, with renewables, you basically significantly increase the amount of materials, um, as well as land that's required to produce a unit of energy. So I think one rule of thumb is you should, we should, the, the right direction of travel is that we should be using less materials, you know, per unit of transportation or energy or wealth over time. Um, and it's okay to be using more energy in the sense that what we're trying to do is protect the natural environment. And that means using fewer natural resources. And what we find in many cases is that requires using more energy. And that's not a bad thing if your energy sources themselves are becoming less material intensive. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.